Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. And uh, here in Isaiah chapter number 54, we see in verse number 1, that first word was the word sing. God's people are singing people. At the same time, if you're familiar with your Bibles, you will see that Well, chapter 54 comes right after chapter 53. And chapter 53 is quite a well-known passage of Scripture. It's quite an important passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the suffering of our Savior. Talks about the suffering of Jesus Christ. It says in verse number 3 that he is despised and rejected of men. It says that he was a man of sorrows. It's interesting that it says here in verse 53 that he was a man of sorrows so that we could sing. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. In verse number 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This last Wednesday night we partook of the Lord's Supper, those of you that were able to be here, and if you're a member here of Bible Baptist Church, you partook of the Lord's Supper, and it's a time of remembrance. It's a a command of the Lord. We are to partake of the Lord's Supper as members of of the church, and, and there are two elements to the ordinance. There's the bread, and there's the juice, representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the body that was broken for us, and the blood that represents life that was shed for our salvation. It says here in verse 3, 4, and 5 that describing the death of our Savior, it wasn't a pretty sight. We know that Mary was there, that she saw Jesus hanging on the cross. And sometimes you see some depictions of Jesus hanging, sometimes some painting, sometimes some figures or things like that. But the Bible makes it clear that he was marred so much that his visage didn't even look like that of a man. It didn't even look like a person. It would not have been a picturesque sight. It would not have been something that Mary or any other family members would have liked to have remembered. In verse 7 here, in verse, uh, chapter 53, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The crucifixion was a practice that was obviously used by the Romans. And as I was reading about it, they were writing that only slaves, provincials, and the lowest types of criminals would be crucified. Crucifixion was 
a process for the lowest of the low. There were Roman citizens and non-citizens, and Roman citizens would very rarely be crucified, but Jesus Christ was crucified. And it describes, in, it, it, every single process was different, but after the condemnation, it was a custom for the victim to be scourged with a whip, with leather tongs. You might have heard about the cat of nine tails. It would have been a whip that would have had a single handle and would have nine different strips that were separated out. And in each of those strips, they would tie, you know, bone or stone or pieces of glass. And they would whip the individual. They might have the individual's hands tied and tied above his head. Sometimes they might have a large rock and, and place them over the rock and tie them stretched out over the rock. And, and they would whip time and time and time again. It's been said that some individuals in that process would not even make it to the cross. They would die before they even got there. And Jesus, as he was being whipped, he was being whipped for me. He was being whipped for you. And then he was crucified and he died on the cross like a criminal, like the lowest of the low. And it was a very heavy price to be paid. You know, sometimes people wonder when, we, when they hear about our doctrine, the teaching out of God's words, they wonder, why, why did that process have to happen? Why did Jesus have to pay the price? Why did Jesus have to go through this suffering? It's because of my sin. And it's because of your sin. And, uh, you know, when you walk into a store, you can kind of get a feel for the value of something based on the price tag that it carries. You know what I'm saying? You walk into a store and, and you see something that looks really nice. You might see a nice piece of jewelry and it looks really great. And you flip the tag and it says $9.99. You think, okay, maybe the materials are not that great. Maybe it's going to break after a little while. This, this looks great, but it's, it must not be that valuable because the price tag is so low. You know what I'm saying? When you walk into a store, you might feel something and think, hey, this, this piece of clothing seems really And you look at you turn it around and it's on clearance for 99 cents. And you think, wait, there, there must be something that's not quite right here. Right? We, we know a little bit about the value of something based on the price tag that it carries. You know, when you talk about real estate, you look at a house here in, in the L.A. area, you think about what you could get for, I don't know, uh, $500,000. It's, it's, you could get something. But you go out to the Midwest and you have a $500,000 you know, piece of property. I mean, it's a mansion. I mean, it's huge. The problem is it's in the middle of nowhere, amen? That's why we don't want to go there. We want to be here. And we want to be here where, you know, things are happening. We enjoy this area. You know, we understand that there's a difference there based on the price tag that it carries. And the salvation for you and for me is free. I don't pay anything for my salvation, and you didn't pay anything for your salvation either. It's free. There are no works involved. Nothing that you could do that could contribute to salvation, but salvation wasn't free for Jesus. It was a heavy price to be paid. It's been said that you get what you pay for, and Jesus got what he paid for. 
a great salvation to offer to you and to me. And that's why we can sing. Because of the price that Jesus was willing to pay on the cross for our sins. And maybe you're, not, you're sitting here today and, and, and you're really thinking, is sin really that big of a deal? Is sin really that costly? Are my sins really, ne- is, it, is it really necessary for Jesus to have died on the cross and gone through the process? You know, it says in verse number 5 and in verse number 6, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This morning, I want to take a look at three descriptions of our sin. Three descriptions of your sin and my sin that made it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. Number one, I see that we went beyond in rebellion. Verse number five says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. The word transgress or to tra- uh, transgression means to go beyond. There's a line that is there that is set, and to transgress means simply to walk over that line. I went too far. That's what the word transgress means. That we should not go over this line of the law that is given to us out of God's word. Another aspect to this word of transgression is here in this case, the fundamental idea of the the root of this word is a breach of relationship. Sin is a separation of relationship. When we sin, we break the relationship between me and God. And I break the relationship because I do something I should not have done. That's what transgression is. And I saw a a documentary about a a rock climber. Some of you may have heard about him. His name is uh, Alex Honnold. And uh, he's not somebody that I'd ever heard of before. I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, I don't rock climb. I've been rock climbing before, though. You know, in, in the little, you know, inside the warehouse thing. And, and they have the little plastic things on the wall. You know, I, I, I've done that before. And uh, I've, I've tried climbing on the very basic things. And they tie a harness to you and you climb up and things like that. And, and uh, I've, I've done some very limited rock climbing. The easiest of the easy things. And, and uh, you know, when, you, when you're going up, even on the easy things, it's very difficult. It's not that easy. You have to have a lot of strength. You have to have a lot of flexibility. You have to have a, a good grip. And uh, it's, it was very difficult. Even some of the basic things I found myself unable to do. And, and uh, so I was, I was watching this uh, documentary. And uh, he, he is famous now for having done something that nobody else has ever done. What he did was he went to Yosemite. And there's a rock there called El Capitan. You know about El Capitan, right? Some of you may have seen the picture. Some of you have known about it. He climbed El Capitan. It's 3,000 feet up. I mean, if you see a picture of it, it's pretty majestic. 
it looks like just a solid rock all the way up for 3,000 feet. What makes it amazing is not that he climbed it, because he climbed it doing something they called free solo, which is he climbed it without a rope. He climbed El Capitan, he climbed 3,000 feet straight up without a rope. One mistake, and you die. One mistake, and you're gone. And uh, he, was, uh, he had started rock climbing when he was about uh, 10 years old, and, and uh, he's, I think, in his early 30s. So he's been doing this for like 20 years now, and uh, he was one of the best in the world, maybe the best in the world. He, he, you know, he had said, you know, he would go to El Capitan, and, and he, every year he would think, this is the year that I'm going to do it. That's, you know, that's kind of his specialty. He's like, this is the year I'm going to do it. And he would go there, and he would look up at it, and he'd say, no, nah, not this year. And he would do this year after year. He would, he would psych himself up and hype himself up, and he would get there, and he would look up at the wall and say, oh, no, not this year. Until finally he got to the point where he felt like he was ready. He was ready to climb this rock wall. And uh, for years he had been in preparation, and uh, he had this whole uh, you know, system set up a year in advance. He started doing some stretching exercises necessary for different things, and, and he, would, he climbed up onto the wall, and, and if there were any loose rocks, they would collect all of the rocks and put it in a bag and, and rappel all the way down and, and try to deposit all of, every single possibility of any mistake or any problem. They tried to eliminate it. And he would climb over and over and over and over again to make sure that he knew exactly what he was doing. And so finally, he decided that he's ready. So he went over there, and he started at the bottom, and he just starts climbing. I mean, he's so prepared that he just, he just starts going up uh, just like nobody else ever could. He did it in under four hours. He started in the morning and was done in four hours. This is an amazing feat, quite an amazing accomplishment. And I saw some pictures, and, and there's a picture of him. I think it was after he was done. There's a picture of him standing. And he's at the edge of the rock, at the edge of the cliff, looking down. You know, looking down at the valley floor, maybe looking down at his accomplishment. And uh, I'm the kind of guy that would not go that close. Because one wrong step, and guess what? You go over. One, you know, prankster guy who just kind of scares you a little bit. You slip. You go over the edge. And you die. One mistake. And it's over. You go over that line, and it's certain death. Sometimes we think transgression is, oh, I broke the law, so what? I stepped over the line, it's not a big deal. Oh, but the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is not just here, I stepped over the line, I'm back over the line, I stepped over the line again, see, I can do this over and over again. No, sin is, you're at the edge of a cliff, and you step over that line, it's certain death. When you break God's law, it is certain death. Transgression is a serious thing because of the guarantee of death. Because of the guarantee of that consequence. That's why we can sing. We were all in transgression, amen? 
We are all sinners. We all stepped over that line. We were all plummeting to our death. And Jesus, by his salvation, came in and he saved us from certain death. That's why we can sing. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. And that's why we can rejoice because here we are plummeting to our death and hell is approaching quickly. And we can see it coming and it's, it's right there. And Jesus swooped in and he saved us. Praise the Lord. That's why we can sing. We went too far in rebellion. That's what transgression is. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why he was wounded. Verse number five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. First John chapter three, verse four, again says, whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Jesus died on the cross because we stood at that line between righteousness and sin, and we stepped into sin. And we were falling to certain death. And Jesus died on the cross to save us. I see that Jesus had to die because of my transgression and your transgression. I also see that we were bent beyond repair. Verse number five again says, but he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities. I was studying, and, and I guess the word for iniquity has this idea of to bend or to twist. The idea of iniquity is to be twisted in sin, to become unusable, to be useless. As I mentioned, I grew up in the Seattle area. And uh, I moved there when I was uh, eight years old. So I was still a little kid when I moved to the Seattle area. And uh, we visited a, a, a several different churches for a couple weeks before we decided on the church that, that we went to, that I grew up in. And my parents still go to that church. And, and uh, we were meeting just in a, in a strip mall. You know, we were just renting this little part in the strip mall. There was a gym on this side. Uh, there was like a baseball card store on the other side. And, you know, we were in that kind of situation. And we were renting it for quite a while. And uh, one day, the landlord came in and raised the rent, right? I think every one of us is familiar with having our rent raised. But he raised the rent. I think it was triple. He raised it three times what they were charging us at the time. And uh, our pastor was like, we got to move. Where are we going to move? Where are we going to go? And uh, I don't know exactly how he found out about this, but there was a piece of property that was not too far away. It was about four acres in size. I think they, I don't know the total cost, but we needed a $45,000 down payment to secure the land. And we had 45 days to get it. And we started at zero. We started at zero and we needed 45,000. We were not a large church. And uh, you know, we were just kind of scraping by day by day. And so we, we started praying. And I remember the pastor, he had a, like a, a big piece of paper and there was a thermometer on it, you know, an outline of a thermometer. And at the bottom it was zero. And uh, he would fill in every single dollar that we would get. And uh, our church members, we were passionate about having our own property and seeing the church to grow. And, and we were excited. And, and so, uh, you know, my family and other families, uh, you know, they, they committed. And so I think we committed, you know, like half of it. But, you know, we still needed more. And so my pastor, he started calling other churches and other pastors that he knew. 
And so, you know, there's this property, and, and we really uh, think that this is what God wants for us to have. And uh, it was really coming down to the line, right down to the wire, to the point where pastor was checking the mail every single day. Maybe there's a check in the mail today. Maybe there's a check in the mail today. The last day he got a check and got us over the $45,000 limit. So we got the check and we put it in, we deposited it, we went in, we put the down payment down, we got the property. And that's great. But the property is not built at all. It's forests. There are trees just on the entire property. So we have land, but we don't have a building. So, well, we started renting some other things. And then we, and what we did was we rented a tent. You know those big carnival tents? Except it's not colorful. Ours was just white. We met in a tent for a year in Seattle in the rain with no parking lot. It's just dirt. I mean, you, you want to talk about dress shoes? Ain't nobody wearing dress shoes. Every week you're wearing your rain boots. Just like today, many of you might be wearing your rain boots every week. I was not there for it, but the first Sunday, it was raining that whole weekend to the point where it was flooding into the, the tent area. So pastor and some other men went to the property and they dug ditches all the way around so that the water would go around. And uh, so we would park, and uh, they put out these long pieces of wood so that people had a little plank to walk on to get to the, to the tent area. And uh, that's what we did. And uh, so we did that, and we were just, you know, trying to do what we could. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, as a kid, it was great. <laughs> as a kid, it was fun. You know, it was like, wow, this is a tent. This is great. This is exciting. There's wood chips on the floor, you know. <laughs> if you get bored, you just play with the wood chips, you know. And uh, so as a kid, it was fun. As an adult, I'm sure it was not quite so fun. But that's what we did. And, and we were in that, in that tent for about a year, and then we had to rent another place off-site. And then we, we had like a little, we called it a garage. We only called it a garage because it had a garage door on the one side, but it was basically like a small, you know, kind of auditorium. And so we, we met in there until the church building was done. But, uh, we, you know, we, again, our church is not, you know, booming with wealth. And so we tried to save as much as we could. So there was a church member in our church who was a carpenter, and he was familiar with framing, and so he was in charge of the framing. He framed the whole church building, and to him and his crew and some others, and so we saved some money that way. And some church members participated in the building project itself. Uh, when the foundation got laid down, you know, of course, they, they bring in the truck and they pour out all the concrete. It was some of the, the, the teenagers. Teenagers. I don't know if you want to trust the foundation with teenagers, but that's what we did. They had those things, you know, you got to smooth out the foundation. So you got this thing on your knees and, and you know, it's flat and uh, you have this thing in your hands and it's flat and you're just, you're just going through the whole thing, flattening out, making sure that it's totally smooth. You know, that's what we did. And uh, so there was, a, there was a man in our church who, uh, he was not a framer. This was not his job. It was more of a hobby, but he knew woodworking fairly well. And uh, he was going to build like some shed or something. And so I'm just a kid. You know, I don't even think I'm a teenager, uh, or if I am, I'm, you know, still in middle school. And he said, hey, you want to help me? His name was Mark. And I was like, yeah, I'll help you. And uh, he said, all right, we're going to do this thing. And, and he had this, you know, square, you know, frame that he wanted to build as kind of a, a base or whatever. He said, here, you need to nail all of these nails in and uh, put this, this thing together. And I said, okay, okay. And uh, so he gave me a hammer and he gave me these nails. 
The thing is, the nails are not like the nails that you use in your home to put in a picture frame. The nails that he gave me were about like this long, you know, and they're like, you know, maybe not quite the size of my pinky, but they're big nails. And, uh, you know, it's not just tap, 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 boom, and you're in. I'm a scrawny little kid. You know, you got to pound away at it to get it in, you know? And uh, so I'm pounding away at it. And uh, nails that are that long, if you don't know what you're doing, what happens is they get bent. So I start hammering away. And if you don't hit it dead on, guess what happens? It bends. So I'm hammering, and like the second one in, boom. So what do I do? Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> I try to get it straight. Bam, bam. And then crook it this way. Tap, tap, tap. You know, bam, bam. And uh, I remember, I was like, this is such hard work. You know, I'm doing this over again. I would call Mark over. Mark, I, I, you know, I can't do it. And, uh, you know, he was really good. So he would tap it over. He was a big guy. He would tap it over, get it straight, and he'd go, bam. And he would go in flush. I was like, wow, you know, and I, you know, I'm doing this over and over again. And, and uh, my nails just keep getting more and more and more and more crooked to the point where one of the nails was so bad that Mark just said, I'm sorry, we can't save this one. And he just bent it over into the wood and slammed it into the wood so it wouldn't get in the way. I mean, it was that bad. That's how bad I was. When we talk about iniquity, and being bent and twisted. The Bible says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You might say, how is that possible? Why would all of my righteousnesses be as filthy rags? How could my good things be bad? It's like me trying to nail that nail into the wood. Every time I put it down, guess what? It just gets more and more crooked. It just gets more and more bent. And the longer I hammer away at it, the more and more it just goes this way and that way and this way and that way. And I try to correct it and I try to do this and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We were bent and we were twisted in our sin. But God died on the cross, cleansed our sin, and straightened us out. God came and did what we could not do. God came and he forgave us of our sins. God came and he paid the price. Titus chapter 2 verse number 14 says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous unto good works. You might say, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It's because every day of my life, I'm trying to do good. I think every single one of us is trying to do good, amen? We're trying to do good, just like I was trying to nail that nail in. And yet, it just kept getting more and more crooked. So Jesus had to die on the cross to straighten it out. Thirdly, I see that we were on a bad road. We were on a bad road. Road. Verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray. Again, just like transgression, we might think, yeah, so what? I stepped over the line. Oh, so what? I got on the wrong road. If you follow your GPS and, and you get on the road and you take a wrong turn, right? One of the most common things for me is, you know, I, you know, when I first set up the GPS, my car doesn't know which way my car is facing. 
My GPS doesn't know if I'm going this way or that way. So if it says to go that way and my car is facing this way, I gotta go that way first. And then what does it do? It recalculates, right? And you might think, hey, so I went astray. I'll just recalculate. I'll just get right back on the right road. Hey, it's not a big deal. But going astray was a much more serious thing. You know, I read about a story and heard about this story about there's a group of, uh, of soccer players. Their team was known as the Wild Boars. They're a bunch of little kids and not even the same age. You know, it was a big range of kids. They were teenagers and some were younger than teenagers and, and uh, they were practicing. So they went out of the city, out of the town that they were in, and they went to a field and, and whatever, and they started practicing around. One of the assistant coaches was there and kind of running the practice. And so they, they were practicing, and when they were done with the practice, they were supposed to, you know, come back into town, and everybody was going to go home, but, but it was still daylight. So they thought, maybe we'll have a little bit of fun before we go out, uh, go back home. And so they went over to this cave, and they started hiking in this cave, this cave that they've been to several times before. They've been there before. And so they started going, and they started climbing, and they started getting in. And they were having a good time and kind of just enjoying, you know, getting in there deeper and deeper. And they were about a, over a mile in, having some fun. But this is a group of boys that lived in Thailand. And this is a group of boys that was hiking in summer. Monsoon season was supposed to be a, month, uh, a week away. But it started raining that day. They're inside the cave and they have no idea that it's raining. And so they, they, they go up. They just start going up and getting deeper and deeper. The coach doesn't know that it's raining. The kids don't know that it's raining. So they're just getting deeper and deeper into it. Until finally the rain has been soaked in so much that it started pooling up behind them. The coach realizes that they're in trouble, and so he tries to go back, and he sees that there are sections where there's water. And there's a section where the water has come up, and it's just covered the entire path. And so, you know, he swum before, so he, he tries to figure out a way to get out and maybe get the boys to get out before it gets too bad. But he realizes that he can't get out, and the boys are stuck. So they just keep climbing up higher and higher to try to get to safety. So they're just sitting there for a couple minutes. Maybe the water will go down. A couple hours, maybe the water will go down. A couple days, maybe the water will go down. It gets nighttime. The parents get worried. They start calling around. They call the coach. Hey, my boy's not back yet. Hey, my boy's not here. Hey, what's going on with practice? Is, everybody, is everything okay? What happened? Coach is wondering what's going on, tries to call all the boys, and finally gets in touch with one of the boys that was at the practice but didn't go hiking. He went home, and he told them what happened. He said, oh, they were going to go hiking in this cave. And so they all rush over there. The parents rush over there. The coach rushes, rushes over there. They see the bikes of all the kids, and they realize that they're deep inside, and they realize that they're in trouble. There's a couple fortunate things that happened. There was a, a man, he was a British man, 
He was in his 60s. His name was Vernon. He had been kind of living in the area off and on and had been, he had, he had a scuba gear. And he had been in that very cave, you know, just kind of, you know, going in and seeing the, the land and, and the things like that and charting it out. And it just so happened that he was in the area that day. He was going to be at that very cave the next day to try to go in and just kind of explore the area a little bit while the water was in there. And so, so one of the authorities knew about this man and called him up and he went up. And he called three of his friends. He called Rick, he called John, and he called Robert. And they were all volunteers of the British Cave Rescue Council. And so they, they got in there. Now, you have to remember that the boys are there. No food, no water, no light. Possibly running out of oxygen, too. Outside, it keeps raining. That whole Saturday, rains. The next day, it's a little bit drier. Monday, rain. Tuesday, rain. There's not a lot of options. If you wait, you don't get out until November. It's July. That's a long time. Here, here is this man, and he realizes that these kids are in trouble. Fortunately, he knew the area quite well, and so he had gone in, and, and he knew at a major fork in the road that this way is not the way that the boys would have gone. It, you know, it just is a dead end, so we're going to go this way. And they found the boys. And so they were laying down rope, and they, they brought some, uh, you know, a, a team over there to stay with the boys. They brought a medic over there, and, and uh, these individuals now are, they're bringing oxygen tanks to leave at, you know, waypoints along the way, and they're, they're bringing food and clothes and water and all of the things that they need day after day after day after day after day. And they're trying to figure out all of the possible solutions, but as many of you might know, the story ends with, they realize that they need to swim the boys out. They're going to swim out through these dark, muddy waters. You cannot see a thing. And so they realize if any of these boys panic, then it's death for both of them, diver and boy. So they, they kind of strap them into this little thing, and they sedate them a little bit and put a whole face mask on them. And they took out that first day, four boys. Next day, four more boys. Next day, the last four, along with the coach. I think most of you probably remember the story. It was all over the news. It was everywhere about these boys that got trapped in this cave and, and were there for days and days and days and days. After the rescue, there was a little press conference, and they said, you know, they were saying some things. They were asking questions. What were you thinking? What, what, what was going through your mind? And they said the first thing, just like any other boy, they were afraid that their parents would get mad that they were going to be late, right? That's the first thing that they said. They said, we were afraid that we were going to get, that our parents would be upset. After a little while, though, they said they were, we were just afraid. They said that they were very hungry, as you can imagine, and they were very thankful. At the very end, though, they said mostly they just wanted to go home. You might think, what's the big deal with sin? What's the big deal with going astray? What's the big deal with going my own way? What's the big deal if I just do things the way that I want to do them? Why do I have to live this way? Why do I have to dress this way? Why do I have to talk this way? Why do I have to forgive? Why do I have to be loving? Why do I have to be kind? Why do I have to do these things? It's because when we don't, we go astray. 
And when we go astray, it's not like, well, we just hop off this path and go into this path and then we hop right back on. It's like those teenage boys that went off the path and went into a cave and behind them is destruction. Behind them, they are now trapped. They cannot get out. They don't have any hope. And the rains are just coming up higher and higher and higher. They have no hope for themselves. They can't just get right back on the right path. They just can't free themselves. They know without help, they are doomed. They knew that. What's the big deal with going astray? What's the big deal with going my own way? What's the big deal if, if I just want to do things the way that I want to do them? Doom comes up behind us and traps us on the road of sin. And there is no hope of escape. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 12. How think ye, if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? Aren't you glad that Jesus went to seek and to save you? And to seek and to save me. That we were trapped in the cave. We were trapped astray. We were trapped with destruction coming up behind us. And, and Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but those that are saved, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Imagine being like one of those kids. You were having fun and you thought that this would be a great idea and it's a lot of fun and then you get trapped and at first you're just afraid that maybe some people will get upset and then you really realize how serious of a situation it is and now you're just afraid. And you don't know what to do. And you think there's no hope. But then somebody comes in. I was reading about Vernon. He was the one that was the first one to pop his head through the water to see the kids. Can you imagine the boys as they're just sitting there and they hear something come up out of the water? And then they hear a voice. Anybody here? One of the little boys knew some English and walked up to the front and they communicated a little bit. Can you imagine the joy that was in his heart? Hey, I've been found. Hey, we are found. Hey, they know where we are. They're going to do something about it. Can you imagine the joy? Now, of course, they had to wait a long time. But they were saved. This morning, Isaiah 54, the first word is sing. God's people can rejoice because of what happened in Isaiah 53. That Jesus Christ, he was wounded he was beaten, he was smitten for our transgressions, for our iniquities, because we went astray. This morning, I just have one question for you today. Are you saved? We're all in transgression. We all stepped over the line. We're all falling to, to death, certain death. Has Jesus come in and saved you from certain destruction? 
Maybe you've been trying to do things the right way and you're trying your best and you're trying to do things and yet your nail is just getting more and more and more crooked and you know that you need Jesus to come in and to cleanse you and to purify you. Maybe you thought that you could figure things out on your own and you thought that maybe you got everything figured out and and you're just going to go your own way and, and then you realize that you were trapped. Has Jesus come and saved you? 